Well, friends, welcome back to the podcast. It has been a minute, but it is good to be with you again. Um, and have you noticed that I say welcome back to the podcast and I don't call it Mike's podcast because I just got to tell you, and I think I've expressed this on here before, I am not a fan of the name. And I was just quickly putting something out and that was the name. I've got to deal with that and figure that out at some point in the future. I've gotten some helpful suggestions on what to name it. Nothing has um, totally stuck yet. Hopefully we will get that fixed at some point because as many of you have told me, it is hard to search for this podcast because if you search for Mike's podcast, I am number you know 50,792. Anyways, uh, today we have got a great guest. I'm so excited for you to get to hear from Richard Beck. I was fanboying a little bit because um, his work has been so meaningful to me. Last night, I was talking to Allison uh, about the podcast and she was, she was asking me who was interviewing today and I was telling her about Richard Beck and about all of the different ways his work has affected me. Slavery of Death had this radical impact on me. His book, Unclean, like if you've heard me preach in some sort of way, you have probably heard me at some point utilize something from one of those books. They, they had a really significant effect on me. And his newest book that we're going to talk about here in the podcast, like, I got it. I just finished recording it and there's so much there and we got done and just sat and talked about it. like we could have talked for another three hours on this stuff. There's so much, so much, so much good stuff. Um, but hey, I, I want us to jump into that in a second, but I wanted to get on here real quick before we got started to let you know about a couple of opportunities, especially those of you who are leaders in post-evangelical churches, whether you're a pastor or you're a leader in that space, I guess, at, at a church or in a parachurch organization or in some sort of in some sort of shape or fashion, you're leading in that space. I wanted to talk to you about a couple of opportunities. So many of you know that I've been leading some cohorts for a little while now. We've got some more that uh, we're hopefully going to launch soon. We've got some more people that want to be involved in that. And so if that's you, that's just a peer-to-peer. It's free. It's just an opportunity once a month to connect with other pastors in the space and to um, learn from one another, to share resources, share what we're learning, and all of that. Um, but what I really want to talk to you about is a gathering that we're putting together in October. It's going to be in South Bend, Indiana. South Bend City Church is going to host it for us at their space. And it's going to be largely roundtable conversations. Some of them are going to be guided. Some are going to be unguided. And it's going to be an opportunity for post-evangelical pastors and leaders to be able to get together, to be in a physical space together, to begin to connect and know that you're not alone to um, be able to like brainstorm together and think about just practical things of leading church together and of just some of the stuff that has come up that I hear over and over and over again with pastors and leaders in the space that you're wrestling through. And so an opportunity to get to work through that with others. So that's October 12th and 13th. Um, We're going to make it totally free. And so I'm working on raising funds because I want you to be able to come I want to get the barrier like down as low as possible for not only for you to come, but I hope that you'll bring somebody with you, maybe your spouse, maybe somebody else on your team. Um, and we're just really looking forward to folks being in the same space together, meeting each other, knowing you're not alone, being able to connect, brainstorm. Um, oh, and what's really fun is Scott Erickson. You might know him as Scott the Pater, uh, Britt Barron, who um, is fantastic. 
uh, the two of them are going to come and I've asked them, like, would you just sort of be like spiritual guides for us at this? Because we're going to have a bunch of pastors and leaders coming to a space. And we want to also create space for like the spirit to do something in you. We want to create space for you to encounter God. So it's not going to be content from the stage because we all like we're listening to podcasts. We're reading books. We're connected like we're getting the content it's going to be about connection with others and about creating some space for the Spirit to do something in us. So um, I'm going to put some info on my website. If you're not following me on Instagram and finding it there or whatever, at mikegoldsworthy.com, you'll find some stuff there. And um, yeah, so I really, really hope that we'll get a chance to connect at that. I would also, as always, love to connect with you if you're pastoring or leading in the space. Shoot me a note at mike at mikegoldsworthy.com. And um, and we'll find a time to connect. Anyways, enough with all the commercial. Let's get into the good stuff here with Richard Beck. Well, everybody, welcome back to the podcast. It is good to have you with us. And I am really looking forward to our guest today. Uh, Richard Beck is with us, Dr. Richard Beck. Do, do I call you Dr. Beck or Richard? How, how are Richard we? Is <laughs> Richard is good. Richard right. is perfect. Yeah, my I undergraduates mean, might call me Dr. Beck, but... It's Richard Frost. <laughs> well, had I, if I have gone through the work to get a doctorate, which I haven't done yet, but if I do, I have told my entire family, you will always refer to me as doctor. Like, <laughs> I feel like it's valid to ask for that if you've done that work. Yeah, there was, I think the first year of my career, I was a little bit, you know, insistent upon that, but I'm getting old now. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Oh. Um, so Richard Beck is with us. He's professor of psychology at Abilene Christian University. He's an author, which is how I first started encountering his work, um, first in a book called Slavery of Death, which um, if any of you have heard me preach, probably at some point, you've heard me quote Slavery of Death. It was really impactful for me when I first read it, um, Unclean, uh, and then his latest book, written a ton of books, but the latest one uh, that I just thought was so significant is Hunting Magic Eels. And um, Richard, a lot of your writing seems to intersect psychology and theology, and do I understand right? You are an experimental psychologist. Is that? Yeah, that's correct. Right? Yeah. I'm a research psychologist. Re okay. I was curious because I often called you an existential psychologist, but obviously that's different than an experimental psychologist, right? Well, that's the topic I research. Okay. Is the intersection of kind of existential psychology and um, Christianity. And so that's where the slavery of death comes out, that intersection of existentialism with Christian faith. So yeah, my area of research is existential psychology. Okay. That, that makes sense. So, um, the, the first thing that I wanted to ask you before we start getting into the book a bit, you're at Abilene Christian university, which is a church of Christ school. And, uh, and I come out, like I mentioned to you, I come out of the independent Christian church. And so we're kind of like related out of the restoration church movement. There are three of us. And for folks that don't know about that, uh, starts in the 1800s and three, like there's three movements that kind of came out of that. I'd always been told, our movement, the independent Christian church, were the moderates, and that the disciples of Christ, that they're the progressives, and that the church of Christ, that they're the conservatives. And um, so, like, how do you keep your job with the things that you're <laughs> writing, if that's actually the case? Well, I think if anybody's been paying close attention to the Church of Christ, and so what? How, how many people of your podcast actually are, are those in that audience? Few, probably. A handful, but, yeah. Yeah, but if anybody's been paying attention, so the Churches of Christ, yeah, were the more fundamentalist sectarian of of those branches, um, and but but I'd say in the '90s, an 
an ecumenical movement began happening in the churches of Christ. And so a lot of our largest, most influential churches and a lot of our campuses began kind of coming out of that fundamentalist posture and began looking for partners in, in, in the Christian landscape. And in many ways, I think that delayed entry into the spiritual marketplace has positioned us very well for the current cultural situation because we haven't, uh, I think, made the mistakes of kind of the mainline progressive Christians who are struggling a lot with demographic decline um, and also, I, I, I it, frankly, struggle with basic Christian commitments. Um, but we have also avoided the, the, the evangelical movement. And so as we emerged in the 90s, we kind of looked to the left and to our right and kind of went, I don't know if we want to do either one of those right now. I don't think we would become evangelicals, but I also don't think we want to become mainliners. And so I think we're in a really interesting position right now where we are uh, in, a, in a broad, generous conversation with a lot of Christian movements trying to come up with our identity. And so it's actually a really great place to be right now because we haven't – we can kind of see some of the wrong turns and and some of our people, me included, are, are trying to make some discernments about what 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 a, what a robust Christian faith looks like in a very polarized political climate. Um, so so anyway, the conversations in our in our I think our best churches and in our best campuses is actually a really hospitable one right now. Yeah, I, I've actually noticed that with several of my friends at our Church of Christ that. Um, I feel like a lot of the stereotypes that I had of what Church of Christ is and means, I mean, I'm sure that is probably true in some places, but my experience has been um, folks that are really thoughtful, that are engaging in a wide breadth of Christian thought, and that there's there's room for a lot of that there. Even um, out here in California, the lectures up at Pepperdine that are hosted, that are Church of Christ, that it's really connecting with a broad spectrum of, of thought leaders. I've always been really impressed with who's there. Mm-hmm. Um, so this book, uh, your latest book, Hunting Magic Eels, I found myself referring uh, several people to it. I found myself like kind of going back and rereading portions of it. It's only been out for a little while at this point, but um, it's one of those books that it just kind of grabbed me. And the, the, honestly, the first thing that grabbed me was your subtitle, uh, which is this Recovering an Enchanted Faith in a Skeptical Age. And there's something about that that was just so intriguing, I think, for where I'm at. And as I've referred it to people, though, the first question somebody will ask me is, well, what do you mean by an enchanted faith? And so that maybe that might be a good place to start. Yeah, the academic answer is um, coming out of a book published by an author named Charles Taylor, who wrote a book, uh, um, oh, man, a little while ago now called A Secular Age. And he was the one that highlighted this contrast between enchantment and disenchantment. Um, and so enchantment is a sociological term that kind of refers to 500 years ago how the world was full of the supernatural and the miraculous. Those were those were taken as givens. So belief in God was the cultural default and the norm, wasn't even questioned. But but over the last couple centuries, we've moved from an enchanted posture and experience of the world um, where the miraculous, and the supernatural and the divine was all around um, into a, a disenchanted age. So a secular age or in the subtitle of my book, a skeptical age. Mm-hmm. And so the demographic decline of Christianity in the West, the increasing rates of atheism, agnosticism, the rise of the nuns, those claiming no 
political, no, no religious affiliation at all. And in the, the, the broader sense that we're moving into a post-Christian age here in the United States. Um, and so that, that enchant, the, the word enchantment is kind of naming that contrast between a robust metaphysical, supernatural, miraculous experience of the world with, with the rise of science and technology and therefore skepticism and doubt um, in the culture, but also in our pews, right? The crisis of faith, even among Christian uh, audiences. Yeah. And you even at some point, uh, like you're pegging science on some of this and saying like an over a view that's oversaturated by science, looking for an explanation for everything to make sense of everything. Um, And doing that in the church is some of what's led us to miss some of the mystery and mystical sort of encounters. Is that a fair? Yeah. One one of the stories I tell about the decline of faith in the West is – is this issue about science? Like, I think if you ask most people, like, why, why is belief in God harder for us now? Or why does it feel more fragile, even among the faithful? And I think most people just say science, right? We're, we're living in a scientific world and science has pushed back on faith a little bit. And, and the argument I make, and this is not new, new to me, I'm borrowing it from other thinkers like Taylor. It, it's not necessarily the factual discoveries of science, because in many ways, the factual discoveries can be sources of enchantment. Uh, rates rates of religious belief are actually quite high in the natural sciences, in physics departments, in biology and chemistry. Like they bump they bump up into the mysteries all the time. So the factual discoveries aren't necessarily disenchanting. But what I argue in the book is that that what is what has been disenchanting is a shift from what theologians call a sacramental ontology to kind of a more men- mechanistic view of the cosmos, that we see the cosmos like a, a smoothly running, complicated machine. And that 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 imagery that the machine is kind of running like clockwork disenchants because we no longer imagine or perceive that somehow the benevolent presence of God is keeping it all running. It's all just running in a lawful way, like a car engine. And when when we imagine the cosmos that way, then God is is rem- one step away. He might have made it, so it's the deistic ma- imagination. Yes. God might have created it, but once He wound it up or He turned the car ignition, He steps back and it's running on its own. And that's that that on its own, that autonomy and independence of the divine um, presence of God is an imaginative shift which has taken our eye off of the miracle, which is existence itself. So um, when you say sacramental ontology, like somebody like me who grew up in a low church setting, what do you what do you mean by that? Yeah, this is going to be coming from like the Orthodox and the Catholic tradition where they have a kind of more robust theology of the sacraments. And so we can think here of baptism or most specifically the Eucharist. So in in the Catholic tradition, the sacramental moment of the Eucharist is a, a miraculous moment where in the words of the the table, the priest, you know, through the doctrine of transubstantiation, the, the, the host becomes in a mystical way the, the body and the blood of Christ. So that's a sacramental ontology because it suggests that the material reality of that bread is still still there. 
but it's also interpenetrated with a miraculous reality. And those two are mixing and fusing. So a sacramental ontology is kind of pointing to the sacred texture of material reality, wherein where the mechanistic view of the modern mind, um, and I think this is kind of captured a lot of Protestant imaginations, is that the divine presence has been evacuated from the mm. material, material reality. So like in my church, like the Churches of Christ, when we took communion, we didn't believe in, quote, the real presence of Christ. Uh, it was more of a memory prompt. Yes. And, and so, again, that's disenchanting because, again, Christ is now not present with us mystically in the in this moment christ is this memory and so again that's a distancing of of god from from the church even right we're remembering this person who lived two thousand years ago and we're we're in a a catholic sacrament christ is literally present in in the room with you in, in in a miraculous way so a sacramental ontology is just drawing our attention to the real presence of god in all things yeah so you end up with um like as you're saying that growing up in in the christian church that i did we took communion every week and a heavy heavy emphasis on this is a symbol it's only a symbol and it's a symbol that's meant to remind us of a thing that happened a long time ago and um and as you were describing that, I'm remembering like we had a lot of theology that was evacuation kind of theology. Someday God's going to get us out of here. And we had a lot of like times of prayer and worship that were about trying to like God is in some sort of ways. God is distant and we're trying to like bridge that gap. We're trying to to some sort of like conjure up the presence that's far from us. It's not imminent here with us. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's all. There, what's fascinating about a lot of that theology, even in charismatic spaces, is how su- even supernaturalism, robust supernaturalism in charismatic spaces or Pentecostal spaces, is still deistic. Okay, because the sacramental ontology says no, Christ and God are present now here. Okay, um, God doesn't need to intervene or interrupt. Because God is the ground of being. That's a very mystical way of thinking about a sacramental ontology. Where the supernaturalism of a charismatic imagination is that the miraculous has to be an interruption of the laws of physics. Like that's almost the definition of a miracle. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, the miracle is an interruption or suspension of the laws of physics. And if you just listen to that out loud, you realize that's deism. Hmm. That's That's a God that's far away. That's watching things run by the laws and has to occasionally and situationally uh, interrupt from the outside. And that's that outside imagination that, that illustrates the deism, even inherent in a charismatic imagination um, of miracles. So even, even just because we're talking about miracles doesn't necessarily mean we're really getting this sacramental ontology right. Yeah. So how would you, how would we re-understand miracles with a much more sacramental ontology, like with a recognition that God is present, always present, his love and presence is all, and we're trying to be aware of that, like how would we understand what a miracle is then in that framework? Oh, man, this is a long, deep, abstract metaphysical hmm. dive. So you might not want to ask that question. <laughs> uh, so, but the answer would be, um, I think found in something like the work of a Thomas Aquinas okay. or a Catherine Tanner in, in what has been described as kind of a, what's called a non-competitive metaphysics. 
and in non-competitive metaphysics is that Protestants, you know, have typically framed God and creation in competitive terms. That if creation is if creation is active, then God is not present. Um, uh, we can just, uh, or if God is present, then creation has to be being overridden. Um, and so we're constantly framing a, a, a conversation about the miraculous in this competitive term. So either the doctors are going to heal somebody or or God will heal somebody. So it's an either or. Okay. That's That either or, whenever you're framing God's relation to creation in either or competitive or contrastive terms, um, that is um, in, in – Catholic theology, a form of idolatry, because God is being described as one agent among other agents. Instead, a non-competitive metaphysics is the idea that, that we're we're in a both-and situation. Um, creation has its own integrity that is a gift of God, but God is the ground of all of that. So God never interrupts anything because God cannot interrupt anything because God is not a competitive being among other beings. Huh. And, if that, and if that sounds like it's a head-bending thing I just said, it is head-bending, but we, I'll just draw a line there. There's a lot of good work on – have your readers, you know, do a deep dive on kind of non-competitive metaphysics and Aquinas, Rowan Williams, Catherine Tanner. I think that'll be helpful for a lot of uh, Protestants. That's fantastic. No, I'm I'm not aware of that at all. And so now I've got a bunch of new books to have to read. Yeah. The the book to read from Catherine Tanner is God and Creation in in Christian Theology. It's an old book, 1988, but very helpful on this. Uh, God and Creation in Christian Theology. Great. Wrote it down. Um, so, so to not go deep dive on that, I want to back up a little bit to the like science has brought us to this place where we've demystified God. And I grew up in a church that was, um, in some ways, uh, a bit fundamentalist. We were a bit anti-intellectual. We were, um, we were kind of the God said it, I believe it, that settles it sort of a space. And that started to, in high school, bother me a bit. Um, cause it just started feeling like there's not room for thoughtful dialogue around things. When I was in high school, our, our, um, Sunday school class was taken through Ken Ham videos on, you know, on that the earth is 6,000 years old. And if you don't believe in a literal six day creation, you don't believe the Bible's true. And so it felt in some ways, very anti-science in that. I don't think that's what you're arguing for. Um, like I hear, in in your writings more of moving to a post-critical kind of thinking um but do you mind sort of like like parsing that out a little bit how this isn't just sort of a like well screw science like god said i believe it like we need to get back to just sort of like um a, a faith that conquers all things yeah so you know one one maybe easy contrast is there's a, there's a difference between a fundamentalist biblicist hermeneutic that crashes into science versus what I'm speaking of in the book, which is more perhaps pulling from more from the mystical contemplative tradition. So my criticism of science is not a biblicist criticism about a, a feud about the age of the universe or whether or not, you know, Noah got a baronosaurus on the ark. Like, like that's, <laughs> that's not a, yeah, that's not a, that's, that's, you're kind of, that's kind of a ridiculous debate right there. But, Critiquing science from a mystical perspective, um, I think, is wholly legitimate. In fact, it's urgent. Hmm. And, and the reason why it's urgent and, – and, and here's why I think it's urgent. Because I think a lot of post-evangelicals like yourself, like me, are embarrassed about our past. 
And so we have we have kind of seeded a lot of ground to kind of science, like trust the science, wear your masks, get vaccinated, pay attention to climate change. Um on and on it goes, right? We are so embarrassed by the anti-intellectual thing that we have ceded so much ground to the to the secular scientific paradigm that that we are now going to have to claw our way back into the conversation. And, and, and the point of argument is the, the way I would describe it is, is the way science, an objective, factual, empirical lens on reality bleaches the world of value and meaning. Um, this goes ba- way back to like David Hume, yeah. um, the great skeptic, where you can't get an ought from an is. This is just one example of this. You can't get an ought from an is. You can't read value and morality out of a factual description of the world. And so values – and, and values are going to be rooted in some sort of metaphysical commitments about who, who a human being is and what the, what the good is and what a good life is. The, those aren't sci- – you're not going to find that in a Petri dish. You're not going to find that on the rover on Mars. You're not going to find that um, in, in any equation penned by Stephen Hawking or Albert Einstein. Like, like you're not going to be able to read the things that ground our existential orientation in this world from a scientific description. And, and so that's where faith shows up in, in, a, in a clash with science here. And I think that's where you're seeing a great kind of crisis – of meaning and value in in a post-Christian age. And this is secular writers. This isn't Christian writers, but I've I've seen essay after essay, especially after COVID, where secular writers are saying, we seem lost. Hmm. Uh, the young people are are struggling with anxiety and depression, addiction, suicide is on the rise. And and and, and essayists and journalists are saying we're having a crisis of meaning. Well, of course we are. Because if the only truth that we're allowed to admit is a scientific truth, then then yeah, we've lost an ability to even speak about ultimate things in a post-Christian age. And, be, and, and, and so people are trying to grab on to things, and the only thing they have to grab onto is like the next Netflix series. Like it's just a consumeristic culture steps in and says, well, okay, don't think about these big questions about a good life or the meaning of life or human being. Um, you know, here's, here's the next Mandalorian season, you know, like that's, that's all we're living for is, is waiting for baby Yoda to show back up or something, you know, you know, or the next super cute, by the way, exactly. You know, or the next, you know, when's the next, what's, when's the next portion of the Marvel universe coming out? So we live for entertainments now. And I think we're all kind of feeling a sense, like that's a really shallow, superficial, uh, life that, that we're just kind of surfing materialism um, anyway, so I do think there's a location where we need to pick a quarrel with science, not with vaccines. That's ridiculous. We don't quarrel. We don't quarrel with vaccines. We quarrel with meaning, value, ethics, the good life, the true, the beautiful, the yeah. good. We need to. I think Christians need to regain their confidence uh, in that sphere of of clash. That's interesting. And would it be that like is one of the issues that we started trying to turn faith into? Uh, into a space of science, uh, and in doing that, we lost the uniqueness of um, of the Christian story that and it, answering some of these existential questions. And we tried to turn it into something that's giving us science lessons and things like that. Yeah, I think. I mean, one of the stories I tell in the book is that the the other thing that Protestantism, like Protestantism, kind of gets 
banged up. I'm a Protestant, right? Um, but it, I kind of take a hard look at Protestant trends. And we, we already mentioned how the Protestantism um, sacrificed some sacramental theology um, and kind of gave seeded that ground. But the other thing that Protestantism did is it introduced a moralism into the Christian faith. Yes. Um, and and it, that used to be for your for your post or your ex evangelical listeners, right? That used to be the pietistic moralism of evangelicalism, so avoiding sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But increase, but there's always been also a social justice aspect to evangelicalism. So this is like Wilbur, you know, William Wilberforce in England and the abolitionist movement. A lot of people don't know this, but the abolitionist movement in America um, prior to the Civil War was was driven by Puritanism. So the Puritan is the Puritan impulse in America has always had that liberationist aspect to it. Yeah, yeah. So so it has been pietistic, true, but it has also been liberationist. Um, in fact, John Brown, right, the John Brown, um, uh, was accused of being like the prototypical Puritan, the prototypical evangelical by the Southern audiences. So there, so so that that moralistic strain in the faith, I think now is getting cashed out in kind of social justice activism. Mm -hmm. and, so, and so one of the disenchanting things that has happened in a post-Christian age is, is we've realized, well, listen, hey, the fight for justice, you don't need to go to church for that. You don't need to believe in God for that. Atheists, atheists can be, you know, good people. Um, and so I, I think another disenchanting thing is, that has happened to us is that we've replaced moralism or political activism um, for God. As long as you're being a good person, then I have no quarrel with you. Uh, and, and I, I listen, like I agree, like I agree with that. Like I, I think Christians need to be involved in social justice activism. I think we're going through a racial reckoning right now in our country that, that cr the church needs to be a leader in. Like I am amening all of that. That said, without a transcendent ground of, of, uh, meaning and value um, that that pursuit of social justice can can have some toxic outcomes. Um, it can lead to burnout, uh, cynicism. It can lead to a, a revolutionary purity that lacks capacities for love and mercy and forgiveness. Mm -hmm. Like one of the things that we've struggled with, I think, in the, the reckoning of the last twenty years, is whether or not anybody can be forgiven. Yes. Um, like, like, can anybody be forgiven And our modern social justice moment lacks, lacks a capacity for that. We, we don't know how to forgive anybody. We don't know, um, if anybody who's been canceled can ever repent. We, we don't have spiritual capacities to do the messy work of healing. Yeah. We just have, uh, a revolutionary call to justice, which is critical, but left unseasoned, I think we all know where that tends. So the revolution without Jesus, I think, can take us to some pretty dark places. All that to say is I think God matters. Being good matters, but also God matters in sustaining the good as the good. Yeah, um, so good. So I'm curious um, – for folks who have gone through some sort of process of, for lack of a better term, like deconstruction, and they have 
been raised in some sort of evangelical sort of space, and they've come to terms with like squaring science with the scriptures and being able to trust some level of science. They have uh, engaged in some sort of critical thought when it comes to the scriptures. And so they have, you know, wrestled through like, oh, well, maybe Paul didn't write all these things or what do we do with like, there's a second Isaiah and how do I handle all that? How was the Bible put together? And they start like sort of dealing with some of that kind of stuff. And as a result of that could end up kind of cynical and in some of even what you're describing that they start finding some like moving towards meaning and purpose being found in doing good works for the community that are significant and needed. And that for some of them were really lacking in their church heritage growing up. And so you're seeing something really significant about like, Oh, I'm fighting for justice. Like this is what the prophets have called me to do. Um, so folks that find themselves in that kind of space, what would be some of your words or advice to like, what does it look like to recapture the mystical in the midst of that? Well, oh, that's a big conversation too. Let me say something about the Bible. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I get it. Like I, I, you know, like the quickest way to lose your faith is get an MDiv. Like I get it. Like, like seminary is not good for faith. Uh, that's, you know, because, but again, what you're doing is, um, seminary education or, or learning about the, the historical process of how the canon was formed and all of that stuff has a disenchanting effect on scripture. Mm-hmm. And, and we, and also I think we, we tend to, uh, treat the Bible as in seminary as a document that needs to be mastered. And so we intellectualize it. And so I think one of the most toxic things that's happened in deconstructing spaces is that these post evangelical spaces is that we have reduced the the Christian life to a better way of reading the Bible. And, And so a lot of us, we do that. We, we spend, you know, we read Peter ends and we, we, uh, you know, uh, go through all of this deconstructing. And so now we, now we have a better way to think about the atonement. We have a better way to think about Genesis. We have a better way to think about the violence in the old Testament and on and on. And then once we get to the end of all that, we're like, well, there's nothing left. Like Hmm. like, I I have so deconstructed the scripture. So one of the things I just say is like, Hey, the scripture is still a radical document. Like I, I had a conversation. I wrote about this on my blog recently. Like I had a conversation with an atheist, um, few years ago about the book of Jonah. And and so this atheist was like a liberal, humanistic, you know, like completely the social justice kind of warrior type, you know. And, and we were talking about Jonah and I was explaining to him how Jonah is this really like deeply subversive book because Jonah goes to the Assyrians and the Assyrians were the ones that raped and pillaged and enslaved the, the nation of Israel. And so Jonah doesn't want to go to the oppressors and give them a chance at grace. That's why he runs. And so the atheist thought Jonah was like a veggie tale, <laughs> you know, like, like this is just a silly book about a whale and no scientific person could believe in such a stupid, you know, folk tale. But I said, no, no, the book is like one of the most radical and subversive documents ever written. And the fact that the Hebrews included it in the canon is one to me, still a moral miracle because the book ends as your listeners probably know with that that haunting question shall i not have mercy on this great city right like like the question shall i not have compassion and love for these your enemies 
And that's how the book ends on this haunting question. And why why would any moral community include that as sacred scripture? Huh. Why, why, would, why would you choose to be haunted by grace for the people that raped and killed and enslaved your people? Why would you choose that moral path? And and when I was done explaining this to this atheist, he was shaken because there is nothing in the social justice movement of his imagination that is calling him to do that kind of work. So I would say to somebody who has like demystified the Bible, like, listen, man, it is still an, a crazy document. And I get that there's things that we have come from fundamentalist backgrounds got to wrestle with. But if you aren't still shaken by books like Jonah um, or the or the the life of G- like if you if you've lost that capacity, I think you need to do some work to recover that because mm. the Bible is a haunting doc is it a haunting moral document that will leave you uneasy about your own moral self satisfaction. Um, uh, anyway, so I would say if you think you're better than the Bible, you're kidding yourself. <laughs> it, I mean, I'm kind of hearing you say that there's like a uh, mystical and even like, do you some of the language of your book, like magical and enchanted engagement with the scriptures that's on the other side of demystification? Yes, I would say that's right. Yeah, you got to go on that journey. Let me be clear about this, okay? That you do have to go on that kind of healthy journey to get a what I would call a, a Christological hermeneutic, that you yep. want to read all of scripture. The Revelation, that's a hard document. Right. Uh, uh, the book of Joshua with the, the the kind of the genocidal passages like like I get it. Like you need to wrestle towards a Christological hermeneutic where you're reading scripture through the lens of the crucifixion of Jesus. OK, once done, then, yes, you got to reenchant that text, because because if you if you don't reenchant it, it can't stand over against you as a moral witness. Right. Once you've mastered the scripture. Then it and and it just agrees with you already. That's the trouble with deconstruction. When 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 you have so mastered the scripture that it has gives you the the answer that, that you want to get out of it, right? Like you've so done the work that it agrees with your politics. Okay, one hundred percent. Then there's no in the in the language of Walter Brueggemann. There's no prophetic capacity there anymore. Yeah, there's no grit in there to create some moral friction to unsettle you a little bit. So we need to enchant the scripture enough to give it a prophetic capacity like Israel did in the book of Jonah, where, where you're haunted to be better than you are. And you just can't settle into kind of your smug, political, partisan self-satisfaction. Yeah. And, and you get into this at the end of the book where you start talking about like testing the spirits and the idea that like we can end up an enchanted faith could lend itself to um uh to almost like creating a kind of experience that just validates what I already believe, what I already think, the tribe I'm already associated with. And you talk about like that um one of the ways that we check ourselves in that is does this lead me to self-sacrificial love? Does this challenge me at all? Does this um confront me at all? That there's like, and if that's not happening, then we're probably we're probably just like doing it through our own lens. Yeah, it, what's fascinating about this we we haven't really even talked about the heart of the book yet. I know i <laughs> i keep I keep answering other questions. No, it's fantastic. But, but the heart of the book is so in this skeptical age, 
um, where belief is harder and harder. Um, like, what are we going to, what are we going to do? And so the big, the big call of the book is that to widen the view um, and open ourselves up to these moments of transcendence, these moments of enchantment, experiences of gratitude and wonder and awe. Uh, Anne Lamont has a great book called uh, Thanks, Help, and Wow, that those are our three prayers, prayers of thanks, gratitude, help, dependence, and wow, awe and transcendence and wonder. And, and so the, the book is talking about um, what Andrew Root describes in his book, A Pastor in a Secular Age, is uh, attention blindness, how the modern world, the scientific, moralistic strain of the modern world that we've been discussing um, is a form of this attention blindness. And he uses this famous uh, gorilla experiment by the psychologist Daniel Simons. It's a YouTube meme that I'm sure many of your people have, have watched where you're, you're asked to watch uh, a black and a white basketball team pass a, a ball back and forth and you're asked to count the passes. And then you do. And it asks you, how many passes did you count? You say like 15. And then the question is, yes, but did you see the dancing gorilla? And and the experiment shows that I think up to 50% of people do not see the fact that when you rewind the tape, a gorilla had come out in the middle of the teams, like did a little dance and walked off and you missed it. And Root's point in his books is that that's what's happening to modern people, that there is something sacred and holy and transcendent right there in front of us. It might be heretical to describe God as the dancing gorilla, but that's the metaphor of the book, that, that there is this holy sacred thing in front of you. God hasn't gone anywhere. And so we're not having a crisis of belief. We're having a crisis of attention blindness. Hmm. And so the book is about, okay, if believing in God isn't like forcing yourself to believe in Santa Claus, because that's how modern people increasingly feel it like, I can't make the jump from one side of the abyss to the other. I just can't like belief can't be a matter of willpower. I can't force myself to believe in something I find incredible or lacking in evidence. So the, my book is suggesting following root, but if we can think about belief as issues of attention and we retrain ourselves to see the sacred around us back to the dancing gorilla. Then we create plausibility structures. We create a bridge to belief because the, because now belief is naming an experiential aspect that, that I have, I have bumped into God in my life. And so, so that's most of the book is how to do that. What's that like? What are some practices? And I go through historical Christian traditions. There's chapters on liturgical enchantments, contemplative enchantments, charismatic enchantments, and Celtic enchantments. And so to your question, by the time you get through all that part of the book, it's like a book that's perfectly suited to a spiritual but not religious age. Because functionally I'm saying, let's attend to maybe the spiritual aspects of our lives rather than the kind of, organized religious aspects. And and I probably should have ended the book right there because as reviews have come out, if they have a quarrel with me, it's I turn in the final chapters, the ones you've mentioned, to talk about discernment of the spirits. That if we're talking about re-enchanting our faith, then there's the worry of misenchantment. And so I say some kind of hard things about to a spiritual but not religious audience about how how do you know that these spiritual experiences that you're opening yourself up to aren't just exercises in Mm self-indulgence 
because uh, my question in the book is if you are choosing these enchantments, right? Because that's the other aspect of the secular age is it's not really as disenchanted as we've been describing it. What a lot of scholars say is that the, the characteristic, the hallmark characteristic of the secular age isn't atheism. Now that's on the rise, but it's still like only like 20 some percent of the population. So when people leave church, they aren't just becoming, you know, Richard Dawkins. They're not becoming yeah. Sam Harris. They're, 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 they are instead shopping around in a very diverse spiritual marketplace, the spiritual but not religious phenomenon where people kind of dabble in, um, you know, so like you and I might be Protestants, but we read a lot of Richard Rohr, you know, so we're like dabbling in Catholic contemplative spirituality um, or you're kind of dabbling in new age spirituality. So you're into like essential oils and aromatherapy, you know, we're going to yoga classes, we're, you know, uh, praying to the divine feminine, you know, we're, we're doing all kinds of stuff now. And, and my point is like, all of that is fine. I'm not trying to be overly critical of, of that. But my question is, if you are choosing these enchantments, then there's this constant temptation that you're suiting them to your, like, to your question, we are suiting them to our own yeah. lifestyle, yeah. beliefs, and political. And we're back to that prophetic question, which is, fine, we want our enchantments to be comforting, but do they have the, the moral capacity to push us outside of our selfishness and our self-indulgence? So I'm not judging any of those. I'm not judging the spiritual enchantments of the modern world as much as I'm asking, can, can that enchantment hold up a mirror to your hypocrisy? And if it can't, then the biblical word for that is idolatry. We we're, we end up just worshiping ourselves. We, we've created a kind of a a boutique spirituality that kind of kind of adds a little spiritual sparkle to my you know capitalistic consumeristic lifestyle. Um, but at the end of the day, um, my prejudices, my biases, my habits of percept you know my habits of treating people that those aren't unsettled in any way. You, you don't get the Jonah moment. Where your enchantment, yeah, okay, the whale, the whole three days in a whale, unbelievable. I get it for an atheist. It's unbelievable, scientifically incredible. That's not the point of the story, though. The point of the story is, does your enchantment have the power to make you run mm -hmm. in the opposite direction? Because what it's asking you to do is so morally difficult. That's the that's the cut of the story. Yeah. It's not the it's not the whale. It's like, can this enchantment that you have put in your life create that moment where you're being asked to love an enemy? Now, if that's what we're talking about, then that's a good then you're on track with the enchantment of the crucifixion of Christ, right? Where he says, Father, forgive them. So anyway, yeah. So that's a that's kind of at the end of the book, kind of critiquing. That kind of generous posture throughout the book kind of gets a little bit of a critique at the end. And some some uh, reviewers didn't like that part, you know, mm -hmm. me stepping on toes like that. But no, I think that's such a good word. And um, if we were to start singing just as I am right now, like I would be coming down the aisle. I think that's it's a good <laughs> word. It's a good challenge. Um, and we only got a couple of minutes here left. And we did jump through like from just some stuff in the beginning to the end. Um, you do spend a chunk of the book kind of walking through four different traditions that we need to repay attention to if we want to 
um, be more aware and uh, recognize better the ongoing presence and love of God in our lives. And so you talked about, you mentioned it, the liturgical, the um, contemplative, the charismatic, and the Celtic. Um, I would love, like you give a whole bunch of stuff in there. I would love for folks that want to like just start to re-engage in that sort of awareness, what would be something tangible, practical that you'd encourage them to consider doing or moving towards? Yeah. So look, can, let me go through the chapters and grab, grab some highlights. So great. like in, in the liturgical enchantments, um, uh, matter matters. So we were talking before we started uh, the, the podcast about how like I've filled my space with icons and, cru- and crosses and crucifixes. Um, and in that chapter, I also talk about uh, structured prayer practices um, and like the book of uh, daily prayer. Um, Shane Claiborne has a great book, uh, Prayer for Ordinary Radicals. So, so when you when you can't you don't believe in prayer, then there are words that can be prayed that have been written for you. You can adorn your space with re- reminders of spiritual realities. You can pay attention to the liturgical calendar. We can enchant time. Um, in the contemplative tradition, I, I focus a lot on the prayer of examine. So a lot of disenchanted believers like struggle with prayer because it seems petitionary. Like I'm just asking God, it's like God's Santa Claus I'm asking. But in the Ignatian tradition, there's this thing called the prayer of examine, where at the end of the day, I just review my day. That's what the prayer yep. of examine is. Before you go to bed, just take a minute and review your day and pay attention to locations of anxiety, frustration, anger, and also pay attention to locations of uh, grace and wonder and peace And teach yourself to discern the ribbon of grace that's running through your day. So a prayer of attention, not a prayer of petition, but a prayer of attention. And that will train you to see that dancing gorilla. Um, In the the charismatic tradition, now this might be problematic for a lot of people coming out of evangelicalism, especially Pentecostal spaces. But one of the things I I, I talk about in there is just the role of emotions. Mm -hmm. Um. That, that a lot of us, especially going back to that seminary question, have so intellectualized our faith that, that faith is just about reading another book, listening to another podcast, although they should definitely listen to this podcast. You know, <laughs> you know like we've turned, we've turned Christianity into getting answers. And, and so we've lost touch with the affective or romantic um, or emotional aspects of the faith. And so I think there's a wisdom in the charismatic tradition of God, God is felt in the heart. Um, and, and maybe reconnecting our faith to those and to let the heart lead you to what is true um, in your life. And then lastly, in the Celtic one, the Celtic tradition is just a beautiful resource for thinking about the natural world. A lot of us feel enchantment mostly outside and in created in, in creation. And the Celtics just saw God coming to them in the rain, in the wind uh, and in the sun and and so embracing the natural, the, the sacramental ontology of, um, of a sunset, of the ocean, um, of a star, starry sky, or just right springs coming and seeing the blooms and realizing that's God coming to me in those spaces. So that's, those are just kind of four yeah. quick things grabbing through those chapters that kind of say, hey, these are ways to attend differently to your life. Uh, you're not forcing yourself to believe in anything. You're just paying attention to what's right there in front of you every day. That's, that's really good. And um, yeah, those have been some helpful practices for me in the last few years, especially prayer of examine. You also talked about in the book um, that you carry a uh, Orthodox prayer rope 
of practice that I adopted a couple of years ago as well that felt very foreign to me in growing up in a low church experience, but has been a really helpful way to sort of order order breath prayers. And mm -hmm. um, it's just like reaching my pocket and it's there and it's this really helpful, tangible reminder. Um, yeah, so I think those are really helpful for folks that are kind of in a space of the recognition of a, a need to re-engage in re-enchanting their faith. Um, one of the things that a few folks have talked to me about as I've uh, encouraged several pastors to read this is they're trying to imagine what could this look like? What does this look like in the church space? And I know that you're not a pastor, um, but I wonder if you have any thoughts for church leaders that are trying to figure out like, what does it look like to sort of lead my people into a place that can help them to re-enchant their faith? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, the big infrastructure problem is just churches lacking any sort of spiritual formation infrastructure. Um, like, like people come to church, we have a worship experience and we have a word, mm -hmm. but there's really no, there's no formational piece that's going to, from Monday through Saturday, where I'm practicing something. Um, now, you can obviously, as you end your sermon, encourage people, hey, do this this week. But there's but there's no infrastructure there. People can go, okay, I will or I won't. So I, I think the bigger issue is the spiritual formation infrastructure. And and I listen, I, I spend a lot of time talking to pastors and visiting with them about spiritual formation issues from a psychological perspective. And I get it that the biggest problem with that establishing that infrastructure is that the church has so little time anymore. Um, every time I visit with pastors or churches, I said, what is your number one spiritual formation problem? Like, like you have, you've been trained how to move people from A to Z. Like you have read all the, th all mm -hmm. the things, you know, what it does, what, you know, so what's the problem And there? Every church has said time people or, or people are exhausted. So, so to me, that's a deeper issue but let's say that exists then i then what i would suggest is that pastors depending on what they can because certain churches have greater or lesser capacity to experiment with different things so the prayer bead thing might be really weird mm -hmm. um but there are other things that you can help your people do and so the answers would be to kind of have smaller groups of people who journey together in trying practices um, and the other thing I'd say is sharing testimonials. Like in my, in the class I did about this out at Fuller, one of the things I had the pastors do in that class was just ask their people to share stories with each other about when they bumped into God. And that was one of the best assignments that they did because mm -hmm. when they had their people telling stories about like, hey, when I was like 23, I had this thing that happened to me. And like that has been the touchstone of my life. Like I can't walk away from God because of what happened to me 40 years ago. Um or, or people would share, well, like just like just last week, I had this crazy experience with this person in the shopping market, and and but God showed up in this this amazing moment, and and so that's the other thing is maybe I think that's the one thing that pastors can do is that you can help narrate your church's experience, right? You you're the storyteller, you're the collector of the stories, you have the power of the microphone to highlight those stories. And so that that's the, what I would suggest is that and that's that's Andrew Roots in his pastor secular age. Your job as the pastor is to name the presence of God in the life of the church. 
And so it's a hermeneutical task. And um, so I think so some small groups doing experimental practices, letting the church tell her own stories of enchantment to each other. And then as the pastor kind of being the person that helps uh, create the hermeneutical capacity to name them the presence of God in a moment, because God is there. That's the whole idea. God's the dancing gorilla. But if you don't help your church name it, like that was God. Yeah. Like, oh, okay, that was God. I, I had missed it. Then I think those are some top shelf things I'd suggest. That's so good. Um, Richard, there's so many other things I would love to talk to you about. We'll have to do this again because we didn't even get to talk about slavery of death. Uh, we didn't get to talk about your the writings that you've done around uh, being a post-progressive Christian. Like that's super fascinating. Um, there's so many things we didn't get into. Um so we'll have to do it again, but uh, where can folks find you if they want to pay attention to what you're writing, what you're putting out? Yeah, the only social media presence I have is my blog, Experimental Theology. And so I, I, I publish there Monday through Friday um, in the morning. So you can find me Experimental Theology and you can find my books on any, you know, uh, Amazon, obviously, but then independent booksellers as well. So wherever you feel good about buying your books, just type in Richard Beck and my name will pop up. Fantastic. I can't recommend the book highly enough. Uh, Hunting Magic Eels, friends, um, I think you should pick it up. If I know the folks who listen to this podcast, as well as I think I do, I think um, it'd be a really significant book for you. So Richard, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Hey, it was a pleasure. Thank you for having me.